All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick. Marty, how are you today? Josh, I'm doing well. We got more snow last night. Like It seems to like never be ending. I'm in the Chicago suburbs. Um, and I know that our plight is nothing like those of uh, those of our friends down in Texas who have like experienced like legit like trouble and damage like that's probably the least of like i'm probably not even describing it well but like we got more like another three inches last night this is like a lot of snow that like way more than we had last year like all in like the span of a month we've got like way more wow yeah it's snowing here currently if i look out my window it's actually snowing quite hard um like a lot it's crazy our Originally, a couple days ago, we got um, about an inch of ice (laughs) and I could literally I went outside and I brought my hockey stick and a puck and my gloves and you could literally stick handle and play on the ice in the backyard. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, And so now it's snowing. Um, I saw your video on Instagram. with that. (laughs) But then like, yeah, Josh, I'm pretty sure the snow you're getting right now is the snow we got yesterday. So, uh, you know, you moving east towards you. Um, so man, Big this, this is my Florida is whether it's going to make it into the eighties today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no bragging about nice weather. Yeah, I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah. Marty well, and I, well, go I, ahead. I, to be fair, I would prefer snow and cold over. Uh, I would not just, my, <laughs> just call me, call me El- Olaf from frozen. I'm like this. There snowman. you go. I love Olaf. It. Yeah. My, well, actually, so listeners, that was the, the voice of Dr. John F. Halt. Uh, who is hanging out with us today. Uh, John, how are you? Very good, thanks. Glad to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much for hanging out. Marty and I, when we first met each other, uh, we were working in a church in Florida. So we used to we used to be in Florida, and I, I miss the weather a lot. Now I'm in Maryland, which is where I'm from. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoyed my time in Florida. I enjoyed, but the first year we were there, we went to the beach on Christmas Day. Me and my wife and my kids, we just got up and like, all right, let's go to the beach. And that's something none of us had ever experienced before, where you could like go in onto the beach on Christmas Day in a swimsuit um, and like go <laughs> swimming for real. So that was we it's we enjoyed different. that. It's different. Yeah. Well, well, John, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and and what you do? Oh, uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I've uh, 
I taught for many years uh, at Georgetown University in the Department of Theology. Georgetown, you know, is a Jesuit Catholic uh, university. Uh, I'm Catholic, but not a Jesuit. I'm a layperson. And uh, I got interested in theology many years ago by reading the works of a Jesuit geologist and paleontologist named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And it's largely because of his ideas that I got pulled into a life in the field of theology. Other factors were there too, but uh, he inspired me and has been with me, you might say, in a ghostly presence my, my whole career. And I'm still trying to lay his ideas out for people who are not familiar with his whole new vision of religion and its relationship to science. So I taught a course on science and religion for 35 or so years at Georgetown. And almost every semester I taught a course on science and religion. And the intellectual backbone of that course consisted of Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chardin. But later on, I got interested in the thought of Alfred North Whitehead and uh, Michael Polanyi. And so they're all process thinkers. You know, they're all aware, uh, as Teilhard especially was, that the universe uh, from now on uh, it looks different from, from the way it did when our religious traditions came into being. The big thing we have to keep in mind now, and there's just loads of scientific evidence for it, is the fact that the universe is in process. The universe is still coming into being. And once we accept that fact, everything looks different, including our ideas of God, including our moral life, what we should, what we should be doing with our lives, uh, including the shape of our hopes. Uh, and I, I understand theology primarily as a search for reasons to hope. And uh, that is something that has guided me throughout my career. And so in my courses and in my books, I've tried to present my readership, my audience, uh, with material that they can reflect on uh, to see whether they, they can find reason for hope. Uh, in the universe and in their own existence. So, so that's what I've been doing uh, for uh, almost 50 years now. I retired in 2005, but uh, that was partly because I had the opportunity to travel a lot and uh, work internationally as well as nationally with others. I've visited many college campuses, given lectures there, and um, it's been a very interesting life, uh, and I don't have to grade papers anymore. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, grading would not be my favorite thing to do. Um, but, John, I just want to uh, thank you uh, for your work. Um, I encountered it uh, first, I guess, um, a little over a year ago uh, when you did an interview with our good friend Dan Koch. Um, and then also um, more recently, I read um, a really good kind of introduction uh, to Todd by Ursula King called Christ in All Things. Good book. Good yeah. Book. And she, she speaks uh, very highly of you in, in her book as well. And um, that led, you know, led to the, the new cosmic story as well. And it's just it's it's wonderful. And it's really um, it's kind of your work has helped uh, give me. I, I mean, the word you use is hope, <laughs> help kind of keep me connected and, um, you know, move on and, and not be afraid of the kind of big questions um, that are out there to be asked. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say thanks too, before Josh goes to our next thing. Uh, the first time I encountered 
um, it being okay to include science in your faith uh, was at Gordon Conwell with uh, John Jefferson Davis um, in one of my systematic theology courses. Uh, he had written a book. I, I can't remember the name of it now, but um, it, it was the first time I ever heard someone that I knew to be Christian say that the world could be more than 5,000 years old. <laughs> it was it, like that gave me permission to be like, oh, okay, like all this stuff I've been wrestling with in my mind, like now it's okay, uh, like to, to think that way. So yeah, thanks for your work as well, because that's uh, it's been helpful for me too. Yeah, and um, so John, we have a, a silly question that we like to ask people when they come on the show, kind of before we, we take a deep dive into um, our content today, which will, which will be about the new cosmic story. Um, and again, it's a silly question, but we like to ask it. Uh, who is your favorite ice hockey team, if you have one? <laughs> oh, uh, I, I uh, lived in Washington, you know, which is where Georgetown is for many years. So the Caps, uh, Washington Caps and Alex Ovechkin and the rest. Yeah. And I still follow them a little bit down here in Florida, but uh, very seldom get their games here. <laughs> sure. That's a perfect answer. You win, <laughs> you win the prize. <laughs> I'm, a much, I'm a much bigger college basketball fan. than. Oh, okay. So. Sure. Good deal. Well, and John, one other quick bio question. What what would you say is the most important aspect of your faith that you've ever had to rethink? Well, it all comes down to uh, what what is God? And um, I wrote a book on that many years ago, which has probably been the most popular of my books, in which I, um, I was interested in not so much answering the question, who? Is God, but but what is God? How what is there in our experience on which everybody can bounce the word God so that we can come into some universe of discourse where that allows us to talk? And that was given to me uh, at least the beginning of a response by my study of the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich many many years ago. And one of his metaphors for God has struck me for many years, uh, starting when I was a very young man, that if, if you want to know what God means, think of the depth dimension of your own life. And what he meant by that, for this depth, D-E-P-T-H dimension, is that there's always something beneath the surface. And once you discover that this dimension beneath the surface is endless and inexhaustible, that's one way of getting a sense of what God is. For example, you you come to know a person and you relate to a person on a certain level for a while, but then that person does something to surprise or disappoint you. So to continue that relationship, you have to go to a deeper level of that person's being. And you relate to the person on this deeper level. This happens especially in romantic relationships sooner or later. You have to find a depth dimension. And you relate on that level for a while. But then the person does something or says something that's not unsurprising, that that, that is surprising. And so you have to pierce a deeper level of that person's being. And the same with ourselves. Uh, we get to know ourselves because of the way others project back to us a kind of self-image. But then we have our own experiences, our own dreams, and so forth. So to, to relate to ourselves, we have to keep uh, piercing to a deeper level. And that never stops. And the same is true, and this is where science comes in, in our relationship to nature. Uh, 
Uh, we think we know what nature is, and sometimes science can give us the illusion that we know what nature is. But science itself stays alive only because it too has to keep piercing beneath the surface. And it goes on and on. And the same in our social relationships and our historical existence. Uh, we like to relate to history and society on a certain level. And we find our favorite philosopher, Marx or whoever, and we think we know what society, what societal existence, what political existence, what social existence is. But we always get disappointed, especially here. And so we have to pierce a deeper level and on and on and on. So uh, what I learned from Tillich was uh, the name of this inexhaustible dimension of depth is God. And that's not the full meaning of God, but it's a starting point in trying to think about God. Uh, later on, as I developed a sense of a universe coming into being, uh, especially as a result of Teilhard's instruction, from now on, don't think about nature without thinking about it having a future, that it's unfinished. So uh, it's unfinished because it has a future. And I came to think of God also as that dimension of the future, which is inexhaustible, which we think we're going to grab hold of, but when we get there, we get disappointed and we have to keep going deeper and deeper into the future as well. So, and, and the same with beauty. Uh, we think we know what, what pleases us, but as we develop, we look for a wider and deeper experience of beauty. And we never are fully satisfied. We're always disappointed. We're always restless in the face of beauty. And that's because beauty has a dimension of infinity to it as well. And that's another name for God. God has uh, been thought of in many uh, ways uh, in, in the past. And one of those ways is as infinite beauty. Uh, and, and finally, and perhaps most important of all, uh, it's our, in our search for truth, uh, which we're having a big problem with, as you know, in our culture right now. It said we live in a post-truth type of era. But most of us find that really suffocating. We can't connect with that. We need a deeper truth all the time. And so we try science, we try politics, we try other ways of getting to truth. But in every area, we realize that we have not yet fully and rightly understood everything. Truth is right understanding. So the search for right understanding that goes on, even in the scientist's personal life, uh, is, a, is a hint that will never be satisfied apart from infinite truth, infinite beauty, infinite depth. So those are ways in which in my classes, I taught a course called The Problem of God for many years at Georgetown. And that's one of the things that I got the students to think about because they would read atheists like Freud and Nietzsche and Marx and so forth. And they could learn that even these so-called anti-religious writers were searching for depth. They even abandoned their own traditions because their traditions were not taking them deep enough. And I found that many Christian, many Christian students were abandoning Christianity because it was too superficial for them. And uh, catechism alone is not enough to fill their hearts. So they come to college and they call themselves atheists, but it never alarmed me because I, most of the time, the, these so-called atheist kids 
we're looking for something deeper. And uh, maybe atheism is a halfway house between naive religion and serious uh, religion. And I guess I should say. So that's sort of the thing that, that uh, that's a long answer to your uh, silly question. No, that's, that's good. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that phrase that you just used too. I'm going to have to write that down for myself. Atheism is a halfway house between naive religion and, and a more serious uh, faith. That, yeah. That's awesome. That, yeah. That's not, that's, that's not a full definition of atheism either. Sure. You deeper into your understanding of atheism as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I really like the work of uh, Peter Rollins. I think Rollins is, I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but he's kind of like a, existential philosopher, uh, theologian guy, but he does a deep dive into talking about a theism, like a, uh, yeah, he, he's, yeah, he's, he's helpful. No, I'm not um, familiar with this writing. What, what's the name of his book? Uh, so he has, he has a, a couple books out there, but um, things like the divine magician is one of them. Uh -huh. um, Insurrection is one of them. Uh, but he he does a thing like right now, since we're in Lent, as we're recording this, he does uh, something called atheism for Lent where he actually walks people through um, the different atheists and does exactly what you're talking about, finding the depth and yeah, um, yeah. giving a more well-rounded definition. Yeah, look into that. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so um, you wrote a really wonderful book that has been super helpful to myself, uh, The New Cosmic Story Inside Our Awakening Universe. And I love, I love that idea, the, the image of an awakening, an awakening yeah. universe. And for some of our listeners, though, that might be a completely new idea. Like, wait a minute, what? Creation's not static. I, you know, I thought, you know, what's going on here? So can you just kind of get us on the, on the same page? When you say the awakening universe, what are we talking about? Well, first of all, you, you have to uh, study the new scientific cosmology. This is a, a, a whole new understanding of the universe that science has gifted us with, a, a banquet, a 13.8 billion year story of an unfolding universe, which in its initial phases seemed to be devoid of life, devoid of consciousness. Uh, but then uh, 3.8 billion or so years ago, life came about. And life has a quality which we don't often reflect upon. What makes things living and distinct from lifeless is they have a capacity to strive, to uh, endeavor. And life fades away if, if life we know this from ourselves right now. What are we doing? We're striving to find right understanding about things. We are living beings, but we share that striving with a whole history, whole evolutionary history of beings that preceded us in time. And I like to see that whole history of life coming about. And then finally, in its most recent stage, becoming conscious and self-conscious in human beings, I see that whole process as an awakening. Now, what allows me to see the whole process as awakening is astrophysics. Astrophysics tells us that life would not come about at all and mind would never have come about at all unless the universe and its in its very first microsecond of existence took on a kind of character that sooner or later would almost inevitably give rise at some point in its existence and its future to life and to mind. And as a theologian, what occurred to me, and then this is one of the main points of my book, uh, The New Cosmic Story, is that the awakening has not stopped. And that, that 
one of the ways in which it has awakened is by scientific awakening, the science of the enlightenment. All that is part of an awakening. But beneath all that awakening, uh, what I've tried to uh, explain in this book is that there's something we don't often think about, and that's, or we don't think about it rightly, and that's the posture of faith. And by faith, I mean the state of allowing ourselves to be grasped by this dimension of depth that I talked about, I talked about by wider beauty, by deeper truth. And uh, so that even the search for truth in any area, including science, requires a kind of surrender of our being to something that's grasped hold of us. And uh, you can name it in many different ways, truth, beauty, freedom, depth, but we could also call it God. And, uh, and that, that's, that's what I mean. We have to enlarge our sense of God to encompass all that we find ourselves awakening to. And, and, uh, and that's so, so the process of ongoing awakening, now that the universe has become alive, now that it has become conscious of itself in us humans, the way in which the universe continues its awakening is by way of faith. And I'm understanding faith as a cosmic reality. Faith is not just a subjective thing. So the new cosmic story allowed us to look at the whole of nature, the whole universe in a different way. And this is so recent that most people who are unaware of science don't know what I'm talking about. So science is, an, is a necessary condition for the kind of thinking about God and faith that, that I'm talking about. So, so um, the universe, when our religious traditions first arose, uh, especially in the theistic societies, but also in others as well, was not aware, the people were not aware that the universe is an ongoing story. They thought of the universe as fixed, as immobile, and they thought of human souls as being planted here so that they can prove themselves worthy to be taken away into some uh, other world. And that's perhaps the best we could do as long as we did not know that the universe itself is an awakening and that we are part of this larger awakening. So cosmology gives us a whole new framework for thinking about faith, about religion, and about God. And it magnifies the idea of God uh, in a way that no other developments in human consciousness, uh, I think, uh, have given us uh, in the past. We always had a sense of the infinite, but the infinite seemed to be beyond the universe. And we had to die in order to get in touch with it completely. We could perhaps, as Plato taught us, we could try to get in touch with it provisionally by way of uh, contemplation of of, of immobile things, of perfect numbers, for example. Uh, but we couldn't get a sense of the whole cosmos as awakening to the infinite. And what that has done for me, and Teilhard de Chardin is, is the, really the first scientist in the 20th century to have made the idea of an unfinished universe, the framework of all of his thought. And if the universe is unfinished, then that means it has a future. And if it has a future, that's a reason to hope. So science, if you think of it that way, has not ruled out hope. Many scientists think that, still think of the universe as just a set of uh, atomic particles 
rearranging themselves as Democritus taught centuries ago over the course of time. But that seems to be a rather shallow understanding of what's going on in the universe. Uh, incidentally, uh, my, my main question has been, what is really going on in the universe? Not just in our souls, but what's going on in the universe? And how are we connected to what's, to what's going on there? And I'm going to publish a book, a uh, sequel to the one that you're mentioning here. Uh, this will also be with Yale University Press called God After Einstein. Uh, years ago, I wrote a book called God After Darwin. And this is a kind of sequel to that too, because cosmology changes our whole understanding of, of life as, as well as uh, of, of human existence. So, uh, and Einstein is the one who, through his mathematics, gave us the, the framework for this unfinished universe. Uh, he himself, incidentally, was still so platonic that he did not see that the universe described in his general relativity theory is a universe that's changing. And he, he himself never really fully bought the idea the universe as a, as a story of becoming, of awakening. That did not occur to Einstein, but it did occur almost immediately to some of his fellow astrophysicists, some of his fellow physicists, uh, among whom was a Belgian priest uh, named George Lemaitre, uh, who was really the father of the Big Bang uh, cosmology. It was he that said the whole thing, you know, since it's expanding, and as the Hubble telescope has, uh, has uh, I'm sorry, as uh, the uh, scientist uh, Edwin Hubble taught us, the universe is expanding now. So earlier, it hadn't expanded quite so much. And earlier than that, it hadn't expanded quite so much as that. So if you go all the way back in time, you find that the universe originated in a pinprick uh, smaller than the nucleus of an atom, an infinitely hot and infinitely dense universe. It took off, you might say, it flared forth, uh, or as Fred Hoyle uh, sarcastically referred to it, uh, as a big bang. Uh, and this, that's the universe that, that, that we live in. And so we have to uh, uh, understand our religion, theology, sociology, our anthropology, everything, including the evolution of life in a different way uh, than Darwin himself did. Yeah, well, and so I, I feel like you are starting to get a little into this next question we have for you. So it's a great segue. Um, I feel like there's been a few different approaches to this conversation, but in your book, you talk about an archaeonomic reading and then also using analogy to find the universe. Can you break the two down for us? Yes. Uh, the uh, once, once we were allowed to understand the universe as a story, and that's the framework within which I work, we know from our common experience that st stories can be read at different levels and in different ways. So what I do in the new cosmic story is set forth three ways <clears throat> in which people can read this new cosmic story. And so the metaphor of reading is a metaphor for how we search beneath the surface, as I talked about a while ago, for the depth dimension. Is there a depth dimension that science perhaps has left out? 
So there, I think there are three ways of reading the cosmic story. The first way I call it archaeonomic. It comes from two Greek terms, arche, which means beginning, and nomos, which means law. And the archaeonomic way of reading the story is to say, if we want to understand what the story is, we have to keep going back, 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 until we get to the very beginning. And only then can we say that we understand the story. But um, the problem with that approach, and Teilhard uh, taught, taught this to me many years ago, the problem with that archaeonomic approach, which seeks to understand the universe only by taking things back to their beginning, uh, is that you can't go back literally in time. But what you can do is the next best thing. You can take present complex things like living organisms and break them down into cells, the cells into molecules, the molecules into atoms, the atoms into subatomic parts. And that's, that's the way science has been uh, understanding the universe uh, during the last century or so. But the problem with that is the further back you get in time, or what amounts to the same thing, the farther down you go in reducing the universe to its fundamental, uh, to its elemental particles, is that the universe falls apart it, it falls into dispersal. And so what you arrive at is not coherence, or which is another word for intelligibility, but incoherence. So if that's where you're going to rest your thought just in the beginning, you haven't really understood the cosmos because the cosmos is a story. That's only the beginning. To understand the story, you have to follow it as it goes forth into the future. And um, the even earlier way of understanding the universe, and it's still the common way of most uh, Catholics, most Christians, most seminaries, is what I call the analogical way of understanding nature. And that goes back to Plato more than to the Bible. Uh, the Platonic or Neoplatonic way of understanding nature is to look at everything in the world as a symbol that gives us some idea of what God is like. Uh, Catholics call this the sacramental approach to nature. Everything in nature uh, has its meaning because of its participation vertically in the infinity and in the infinite beauty and goodness of God. So that if you want to understand God, according to the analogical approaches, you have to take a good look at everything and so it's a very beautiful vision of things. Everything in some way manifests what God is like. So why are there so many things? Because what's lacking in one thing, as far as letting us understand God is concerned, can be supplied by something else. So no finite being can adequately represent God. And the meaning of idolatry, according to the analogical approach, is our thinking that one uh, type of earthly being uh, fully represents God. So uh, I've come to believe that the purely masculine, patriarchal approach of our religions is idolatrous to the extent that it can't think about God other than an old man. So most atheism is a reaction to that idolatry uh, of Christians and others, to the very uh, narrow way in which they've tried to think of God. Well, Thomas Aquinas said we can avoid that by thinking of God not just as male, 
but in some way as represented by everything living or every everything beautiful. A rock, for example, the psalmists found can represent something about God. You are my rock, meaning a foundation upon which to uh, erect our understanding of God. So that's an analogical approach. And that's still, to me, the dominant approach in the world of, of religions. So what happens, though, if you realize, uh, as I came to realize, and Teilhard realized, that the universe is still coming into being, then uh, nothing presently can adequately represent what coherence is. Coherence is something we can only anticipate. Intelligibility is something we, we can only expect or hope for. And that's the meaning of hope in this new cosmology. I talked about faith. The meaning of hope, hope is absolutely essential if the universe is to have a future. Uh, because if we don't hope, then we're going to say, well, this is all there is. And there's so many philosophies and academic life supports these which are pessimistic about the cosmos. So I call that archaeonomic view the, the, uh, the cosmic pessimism, whereas the view that I'm trying to uh, get across is that it's just as coherent, in fact, even more intelligible, if you recognize that if the universe has been a story of bringing about more being, or fuller being, throughout its history so far, why should we assume that the whole process is over? Uh, why, why, why should we assume that the 13.8 billion years that the universe has been around is anything more than just the dawning of this awakening? So uh, what I want to do is make room for further awakening uh, in, in the future. But what Teilhard taught me, it can't be just any old awakening. It has to be an awakening of a whole community of beings. And in order for this awakening to happen, they have to relate favorably to one another. So um, what, what the universe is in the business of producing is fuller forms of awakening. And awakening, uh, if it's to be full, has to have a social dimension to it. It's not something that one philosopher or one theologian can do by himself. It has to be a whole community uh, with a common hope. Uh, that's where the awakening takes place. It hasn't happened yet, but that's what I look for as the full, fullest meaning of Christianity, when Jesus says that all may be one, or when St. Paul uh, looks upon the creation as being gathered together around a center of Christ. So the Christ that St. Paul believed in was one who belongs to the future as well, who is coming. Uh, so we don't look back to, to get uh, connected to Christ. Uh, we do to some extent, of course, if we read the Gospels and so forth. But as you read the Gospels, uh, Teilhard, and this is my own theology, think not just of what happened back then, but think of what was being anticipated by this life of this special man, and by his death, and by his presence uh, to his fellows after he died. Uh, that resurrection hope. And so what I, what I look, look for is the whole cosmos as being gathered into the body, into the risen, uh, resurrected body of Christ. That's my Christian vision and how I attach it to the uh, new cosmology. But we couldn't have had those thoughts unless we also had a sense that the universe itself is still coming into being. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's, that's so beautiful. Um, I mean, especially just because uh, at least for me, once I kind of learned that the universe was still um, growing or still awakening, uh, still expanding, then I was like, okay, well then the God that I believe in has to be at least as big as this universe that keeps yes. growing and is awakening. And That's so it, an excellent point. Excellent. Yeah. Point. And, and, I'm super and excited. That hasn't happened mm-hmm. to, to the faith and minds of most religious believers on our planet yet. Let's mm-hmm. hope it happens. Uh, what happened is that as the universe expanded in the minds of uh, secular uh, non-religious people, it's not that they lost their spiritual inclinations, but they slipped their souls inside the universe. And that became the fullness of reality for them. And uh, there's, there's a movement called naturalism, uh, religious naturalism, which finds this, there's no need for this uh, deity that Christians have talked about. The universe is big enough uh, by itself. Uh, and that's satisfying to a lot of people. And, and so they've, they've made the universe, you might say, the sacrament or the symbol. Uh, uh, but it symbolizes nothing more than itself. What Teilhard taught and what, I've, uh, what I believe is that the universe itself is uh, an anticipation of something uh, more. Uh, it's not just analogical stuff that points to God vertically. It's not just a collection of atoms and molecules, but it's an awakening. The whole universe is an awakening. Uh, so the, then the next question becomes, and this is what I deal with in my book, awakening to what? Uh, that That is what I consider the task of theology uh, today. What is it awakening to? And we can find a, uh, a lot about what it has to be awakening to at least, at least, this, like what you say, something larger than itself. And... Uh, and to an infinite love, an infinite truth, an infinite beauty. Uh, It's on the way toward those, but it is not yet. There's something not yet about the universe. And I like to think of everything as not yet, because that means there's still room for hope. There's still a space up ahead. Uh, and, And people can feel that deep in their souls, and they can easily connect that not yetness of the universe with their uh, understanding of religion. Religion is articulation of the not yetness of, of God. So, yeah. Universe. Yeah, that's, that's good. And so it's kind of like, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I want to try to, um, to summarize some of your thought here. Um, so in this awakening universe, religion is kind of an emergent property within this universe. And it's, it's helping religion is, is helping the universe awaken to this um, ultimate rightness. You use the word rightness in the book. Um, and, and so religion is the, the universe is becoming aware of this ultimate rightness. And that's the purpose it's trying to fulfill is, is to move towards that, that ultimate rightness. Yes. And so then um, with that in mind, then if within that framework, if, so God, then when we, when we say God, God is the thing it doesn't quite fit, but God is the, the source, the being, the, the grounds for whatever this ultimate rightness is. That's kind of pulling the whole thing forward. Yes, I, I use the metaphor of horizon. Yes. Um, and since the universe is an awakening, I think of 
something dawning, sort of another metaphor that fits into uh, the emergence of that to which the universe is awakening on the horizon. And the thing about a horizon is that as you move toward it, it keeps receding. Mm -hmm. you, never, you never can grasp it, but you can allow yourself to be grasped by it. Yeah. And many people, including those who would not at all call themselves religious, are uh, exemplary human beings who have been grasped by rightness and who live uh, lives of unselfishness and of sharing and of hope. And, and, and uh, there's a lot of hope, implicit hope that's around. So mm -hmm. when, I, when I see religion as uh, provides the opportunity for those of us who hope to gather uh, in celebration. This is how I understand the Catholic mass, for example, the Eucharist. It's a gathering of a community of hope, which has been grasped by the horizon that is dawning, still dawning, and we come together to uh, awaken in community to this coming of, of the infinite, uh, of rightness. I use the term rightness. I, I had to struggle to find that word, and it's still not perfect, but I wanted a word that would bring together what I find in all traditional religions, East and West, even those that don't believe in God have a sense of rightness. For example, Buddhism, which is not concerned about whether God exists, but it's concerned about awakening. And awakening to what? To right thinking, to right associations, to right meditation, and so forth. So rightness is very much there, and it's there in ancient Taoism, the Tao, is uh, something that's infinitely right, and we try to conform our lives to the Tao. So I see this awakening as something that can bring our, our religious traditions together in a new kind of conversation, instead of squabbling over who has uh, the, the closest approximation to truth. Uh, let's see what we can all do to promote the ongoing awakening of the universe. And let's read each other's literature and see what that can still contribute to our mission now of continuing to the awakening of the universe. So cosmology changes everything. It even changes the nature of interreligious dialogue and, and discussion and, and gives it a meaning uh, that it did not have. And it also gives us a sense of the meaning of our own lives is to see what we can do individually to contribute to that awakening to rightness which means infinite beauty, infinite goodness, all the things I talked about earlier, infinite depth, uh, infinite freedom. It's just a word that uh, shorthand, you might say, for the, the, the horizon that has dawned, especially through the lives of, uh, of, of sensitive religious seers uh, throughout the ages, people like the Mahatma, uh, Gandhi, for example, or, or uh, the Buddha, or Jesus, or Muhammad. Uh, it's through the mediation of individual minds, especially awakened uh, minds, that the dawning horizon of the cosmic awakening comes into, or is brought into the present. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's super helpful. And just <clears throat> one thing that came to mind as you were just speaking is it, for me, it broadens the... Um, you know, my perspective, if, if religion is this emergent property and it's, you know, helping the universe awaken to this idea of rightness, 
um, it kind of like you're saying it, it makes interreligious studies and interreligious um, relationships super important because then it recognizes the value and the beauty in all of these, you know, various religions um, that are, that are pushing us towards this, this rightness, this awakening. It, it's, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a much more beautiful image than I'm right. And you're wrong. End of story. <laughs> I like that. So thank you. Yes. Yeah. And I think um, Marty has a really good question for you that I know he's dying to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so as we're, as we're talking about all this, I don't feel like it's missing, but I, I'm curious to hear your perspective, John. And um, how, how does God remain relational and, and or personal in this perspective? Can, can God still be relational and personal in these perspectives? Yes. Uh, incidentally, that's one of the main questions I try to deal with in my next book, uh, God After Darwin, because uh, uh, um, God After Einstein, uh, because uh, Einstein is, is a good example of somebody who would ask your question. And for him, uh, he could not accept the idea of a personal God. Uh, why? Because uh, if God is a personal, then God would be responsive and God would be caring and providential. And God would be someone from whom we could ask favors to whom, God to whom we can pray. So your question overlaps with that question, is prayer meaningful uh, t- uh, after Einstein and, and after the scientific revolution? And so many people have had have gotten hung up on, understandably so, on the idea of a personal God because uh, of the anthropomorphic imagery that we associate with a personal God, it's easy to think of God, therefore, as smaller than than the universe. And uh, this is why one of the reasons that many scientists have problem with the notion of a personal God. And Einstein is a classic example of that. And the reason that he and other scientists uh, would add to what I just said uh, is that uh, a personal God would violate the inviolable laws of nature. Uh, Einstein uh, saw behind phenomena, behind uh, everything of everyday experience, a lawful, unchanging universe. He was also influenced by the philosopher Spinoza, who thought that the universe itself is God. The universe itself it has the qualities of necessity and eternity that theology had given to God. So why talk about God? Why not just talk about the universe as uh, the necessity, as the eternity, as the hard rock uh, ground that we can stand on uh, in our conscious life? Uh, that was enough for Einstein. And so the personal, a personal God would, to him, violate his fundamental religious instincts that what is really uh, worth looking for in our lives is something timeless. And as you know, uh, traditional Christianity uh, was also looking for something timeless. But that's more from Plato than from the Bible. I'll come back to that uh, a little bit later. But Einstein uh, and and other scientists too like to uh, play around in this world of numbers because numbers have the quality of being fixed and eternal. And I believe there's something almost religious about the scientists inserting their lives within this milieu of timelessness. So uh, when Einstein formulated his relativity theory, he had to look for 
a better geometry than that of Euclid and others that we already had. Uh, and he found it in Rus Russian uh, non-Euclidean forms of, of geometry and, and others as well. So that when he formulated his theory of relativity, it was so beautiful because it, it conformed to his ideal of timelessness. Uh, some reporter asked him, what will you do if, uh, if the experiment of Eddington, who found that light bends as it comes across the astral bodies like Mars to prove the relativity theory that light bends in, in the uh, gra strong gravitational field. A reporter asked uh, Einstein, what if it turns out that your theory is not verified by this experiment? Uh, and his answer was, then I pity the good Lord. It's because it has to be right. Uh, and uh, fortunately, it turned out for him that it was right. <laughs> but um, it shows how uh, a scientific mind is not totally detached from the kind of search for infinite beauty and, and, and something timeless for something perfect, perfect uh, perfection. Uh, so we all, all of us humans want, want perfection. And Einstein thought that the idea of a personal God would, would destroy that perfection that he found through geometry. So the way to God is not through prayer, but through geometry. Uh, and sometimes he even referred to this intelligibility, this comprehensibility uh, to geometry that lies, that underlies appearances. Sometimes he even referred to that as God, but it was not a personal God. So in, in my own work, if I want to make Christianity compatible with, with cosmology, I have to somehow uh, keep the notion of a personal God. What, so it, it made me ask the question, what does it mean to be a person? And what, what I found in, when I examine people who are really deeply personal in my experience is that they're reliable. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're people who can make and keep promises. And that happens to be the fundamental feature of the Abrahamic God, the God who makes and keeps promises. And that's what kept the faith alive in Israel for century after century. Our God is one who makes and keeps promises. And when Jesus came in late Judaism and early Christianity, he, he did not abandon that motif. He intensified it. God is fully reliable. And then when Christianity came along, uh, it asked, well, in what sense is this God reliable? And their answer was, uh, if you want to know what God is like, look at this man. Jesus is the incarnation of reliability, of promise, forgiveness. And what does a promise do? I, I started to think about what does a promise really do? It opens up the future where there seem to be dead ends. And, and this is how I think Jesus became so appealing and so attractive in the life of his contemporaries. He himself was an incarnation of this reliability. So you don't have to abandon that uh, adjective reliable when you think about the God of Christianity. And actually, actually you, can, you can link it with Einstein's notion of the reliability of physical laws. Uh, the right reliability of the laws of physics could be looked upon sacramentally or symbolically 
as pointing to the reliability of, of the infinite itself. So you just expand the notion of person uh, rather than have a narrow anthropomorphic image. You have to be careful of how you imagine God. Uh, and what Jesus did in his life was primarily work on the imagination of people. Uh, he uh, said that their faith was too small. Oligopistos, uh, it's too small. So what he did in his preaching and in his life is give them a God of excess rather than a God of fairness. Uh, his God is one whose love shines on the good and the unjust alike without discrimination. Uh, this, this, this deity is one who uh, changes anger into mercy. And, and so uh, the idea of, 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 of living one's life as Jesus did by bringing in the tax collectors and the prostitutes and, and widening the margins of society uh, gives a sense of how God uh, works as well. God has a width and a breadth that we humans have, have not thought of. So the way I introduce cosmology into that way of thinking is uh, to talk about the immensity and the long deep time character of the universe as perfectly correspondent with the notion of the breadth and width and the openness to the future of the God of Jesus. So I, I didn't have any trouble connecting the God of Jesus with this new uh, cosmology. But I understand why so many people ha have a problem doing so. <clears throat> and that's because uh, they haven't seen in the life of Christians uh, this excess, this God of superabundance, as uh, one philosopher has called it. They're, the, the God of fairness, the God of equivalence has uh, edged out the God of superabundance, the God of excess. And, and uh, that was Jesus' awareness, so he wanted to correct that. And in the process, he got killed because people want fairness. They want fairness more than they want superabundance. And it's a good question to ask, why is that so? And, uh, and that's true even of scientists. They want a universe that's fair, law-bound, but not one that changes and that allows for the awakening that I've been talking about this morning. Well, Josh, I just want to point out that I asked a question about relational and personal, and then and then John said Einstein and Jesus. So I guess by the by by a comparative property, I'm just like Einstein and Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I think I guess that's how that works. You're allowed to have self-esteem, but, yeah, <laughs> uh, but but to get to get actual religion should be doing it should be elevating our sense of self-esteem. But yeah, just, yeah. Right. Uh, but, but to get actually serious uh, for another question, <laughs> uh, I think uh, one of the biggest issues that I think Christianity has dealt with for all of history, I mean, ever since the beginning, um, and I would say just as much now, uh, even over the last year, um, as you know, probably ever in history, I think we'd like to say the most than we've ever dealt with, but I would say it's e equal to, is the problem of evil. Um and I, and I think this anticipatory movement towards religion, like what does it have to say about wrongness, death, suffering, evil, all of those types of things? As I said in the book, the notion of wrongness, the notion of evil changes uh, once we see the universe as still coming into being. 
<clears throat> and here I'll just give you uh, <clears throat> uh, some thoughts that uh, Teilhard has influenced uh, in me, and, and that's that uh, by definition, logically speaking, a universe which has not yet arrived at perfection, a universe that is not yet finished, during its trailing toward that perfection at any moment, it's still imperfect. It has not yet been perfected. So, and it's in that imperfection, in the fact that the universe is unfinished, that evil can find a foothold. If the universe were finished, then uh, it's already perfect, then it would not ta have evil in it if it were full, fully per perfected. <laughs> Before uh, evolution and cosmology changed our whole understanding of the natural world, it was quite understandable that people would come up with stories like we have in the Bible, story of Adam and Eve, <clears throat> uh, that seemed to show that this original perfection was blemished by some culprit, uh, Adam and Eve, for example. <clears throat> Other religions who think of an initial perfection when they think of the universe have similar myths or stories about how evil originated, how evil came into the picture. Uh, Teilhard's way of, of dealing with that is so now we have a different understanding of nature. So we don't have to have, we don't have to be fixated on the idea that perfection was full and complete in the beginning. Instead, we have a universe in which perfection is anticipated. And that's what I mean by the anticipatory view of existence. Uh, perfection or goodness is something that we are grasped by and pulled toward, but which never fully takes hold in our lives. So because we're part of an unfinished universe, we can slide back. And that's what we do. We slide back into some past disorganized, dispersed state of being. And instead of allowing ourselves to be brought forward by the horizon or the dawning of rightness. <laughs> and so we're caught in between. So there is room for evil <clears throat> in any universe that is not yet perfected. So then the question becomes, there's a lot more to it than what I'm, what I'm saying here, I'm trying to be brief here, but uh, then the question becomes, why would a good God create an unfinished universe in the first place? And Teilhard, uh, and I agree with Teilhard on this, the idea of a fully perfected, initially completed universe in the beginning is theologically inconceivable if at the same time you believe that God is infinite self-giving love, which is what Christianity believes in. Because a fully finished universe in the beginning would be one in which there's no room for freedom because everything is fixed, finally frozen, in, into place in the beginning. Uh, it's a universe uh, without a future, without freedom, and it's a universe without life, because life, in order to, to fulfill its mission of striving to become more, that's what life is, striving to become more. If that striving is not there, there's no life. So it would be a lifeless universe, a universe without freedom, and a universe without a future, a universe with no room for hope, no room for hope in a finished universe, no room for faith. 
there's no room for being human, in other words, in the way we understand what human existence is. So uh, while we can hope for perfection uh, to expect, and that only breeds resentment of God. A lot of atheism is sheer resentment that things were not perfected, that God allows animals to suffer, so forth. Um, why would a God do that? <clears throat> well, I just re reply with another question. Can, can a good God create any other universe than one which still has a horizon of expectation. Uh, so there's room for hope in this kind of universe. There's room for faith. There's room for being human. There's room for forgiveness. There's room, and what does forgiveness mean? Forgiveness means at least, means a lot of things, but it means at least opening up a new future for those whom you forgive. And, and in most societies, uh, that, that would be, in my view, a, a theological basis for, uh, uh, for uh, criminal uh, uh, um, improvement of the way we, we treat criminals uh, in this country. We, we leave them with no hope. Uh, we put them in cells where there's no future uh, of any sort. So what, what our mission to, to prison should be, should be one of opening up a, a horizon of hope. And that's very, very, very difficult to do without having these prisoners experience themselves as part of a community of hope, you know, and uh, so there's so much more that we could do if, if we think out uh, Christianity in the context of an unfinished universe and the whole new theology. Uh, and we have to forgive ourselves. We haven't yet had time <laughs> to rethink all these things. It's, it's only after all uh, 150 or a century and a half, or a little more, since Darwin gave us his theory of evolution. Uh, geology, the sense that the earth is changing, the earth has a history, goes back a little more than 200 years. But it was only in the 20th century, it's only about 100 years ago, in fact. Uh, Einstein published his relativity, general relativity in 1916. That's not that long ago in terms of the way human developments take place. So we, we have to forgive ourselves too. Uh, for for not rethinking our faith uh, in in line with what uh, uh, what is true, what is what science is telling us. Instead, we're having trouble today getting to people to believe in anything scientific. Uh, it's it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because if God is infinite truth, then why would you not take scientific truth as uh, part as as participative in in that idea? So uh, we haven't done a good job in our uh, suburban pulpits. Uh, in our Sunday school classes, in our catechisms, of getting people to think in this new and fresh way uh, about the universe and how that changes our whole understanding of, of God. Yeah, which is, man, I agree with you. It's such a shame because it's so ripe with potential and there's so many beautiful and creative people. Um, and if only we could get, you know, help people to grasp this idea. I think, I mean, the, the possibilities are limitless, right? Um, and so we, we have one more question for you. Are you, are you good on time? Is that okay? I have about five more minutes. Okay. Well then I don't need it all. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, I'll, I'll ask it and you can be as, as brief as you need to be. Uh, basically it's, it's this, um, a lot of the times, you know, people, we've been looking for this way to somehow be immortal or in your book, you talk about indestructibility. Um, 
And, you know, archaeonomic materialists often will critique, um, you know, people with faith like, oh, going to heaven when you die is just, you know, some kind of escapist, blah, 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 nonsense. Um, but what, so what would heaven be? Or what is this idea of indestructibility within your framework? Well, um, Teilhard at one time asked a question, what if, what if the universe has uh, only several more million years? Today, we'd say billion, as we've, uh, cosmology has advanced, but it's the same, same question. What, what would be your attitude toward your duties, your obligations here and now, if you really thought that ultimately everything you're doing and everything that's been accomplished, the emergence of life and consciousness is eventually going to, to experience what he called absolute death. <laughs> and his answer, and I agree with this, is if we really believe that, and I, I don't think most of us really in our heart of hearts believe that, but if we really believed it, we would ask ourselves, why should I do anything at all? Why should I try to improve the world if goodness is not an eternal value? If there's not something indestructible that somehow saves he uses the word garners whatever happens in the cosmic process. And this is a fundamental theme in uh, Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead's uh, philosophy as well. And, that, and that's that uh, there has to be something that somehow saves and preserves everlastingly whatever happens in this story. And it would not really be a story worth our paying any attention to if we thought that at the end of it all, the story is going to be obliterated and everything's going down to the, uh, an oceanic oblivion, if you will. If that's the end of everything, if we really thought that, uh, then would we put any effort into our lives at all? And if we don't put effort into our lives, we're not alive. So I, I, I and, and that's how, that's the logic that I use in, in, uh, in my belief that there is something indestructible. Uh, and now what our, personal relationship will be to that indestructibility in the final analysis? I don't know. But I think, I think if, if consciousness is wiped out, then the whole thing is, has been a waste of time. But if consciousness is preserved somehow within the compassionate embrace of God, which is what Christianity teaches, then that gives us an incentive to work for rightness. Uh, here and now. So obligation is is undergirded by an intuition that there's something lasting about what we're doing. And Teilhard thought, as did Whitehead, and this seems a little unorthodox to classic Platonic Christians, that in some way, God is affected and changed and feels to the last detail, what is going on in the world, in the cosmos, in cosmic history, that God feels the sense of loss, that God feels the suffering, not just of humans, but of living beings in general. And that somehow all suffering, I believe Christianity means that all suffering will be redeemed, all, not just human suffering. Uh, and uh, we don't need to imagine that in images of sitting around on clouds playing our harps. Uh, we can think of the adventure of entrance into the infinite, into rightness, as uh, something that's ongoing, even in our post-mortem 
state. Um, and that, that makes sense even mathematically, because if God is infinite, then there's no point at which the finite can fully exhaust the infinite. So the adventure continues uh, somehow. And I believe that uh, when we die, uh, we die into this larger life story that has been going on here on Earth. And uh, I think uh, if, if I were to guess, I would say it's going on elsewhere in the universe uh, as well. And so even the idea of a multiverse is something we can, uh, we can uh, correlate with the kind of theology that I've been talking about here. Uh, maybe, uh, statistically speaking, maybe it takes many, many universes uh, to exist to allow that in one of these, indeterminately, life would spring up spontaneously as, as something uh, that is awakening to something bigger. So, so let your thoughts about God uh, be, be endlessly large, and I don't think you'll make a mistake. Well, thank you so much, John, for your time today and uh, for the conversation you've had with us. It's been really, really informative. Uh, you've been um, in a good way. This is not a, ba a backwards comment. You've been very thorough. And so we've both appreciated that. And I know our listeners will, too, because it, it helps. This is not a small uh, concept to grasp. There's so much and so much depth to it. So your thoroughness helps our listeners to understand the science. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. I enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Yes. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. All right, listeners. And you can um, go ahead and be sure to pick up a, a copy of Dr. Hot's book, The New Cosmic Story Inside Our Awakening Universe. We will be sure to link that for you in the show notes. And also, I don't know about you, Marty, but I'm kind of excited about what he was talking about, that new book he's been working on. Um, mm. What is it? God After Einstein. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds God fun. After me. God After Me. God yes. After Marty. That's that's the <laughs> that's the book that I'm going to write next. God After Marty. And yeah, it's, it's yeah. specifically for listeners of this show who are like, okay, I've encountered Marty Frederick and now my concept of God is indefinitely different. I'm going to give you all, I'm going to give you all a brief understanding of what that book will be. God after Marty is God is better. Like <laughs> there not you go. because, not because of me, but because of him, like he doesn't have to deal with me anymore. So he didn't have to put up with my crap. He just like, okay, I'm not dealing with that dude anymore. So sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Totally self-deprecating. That's, <laughs> that's not my intent. <laughs> uh Sweet. All right, man. Well, this was fun. Um, I like nerd conversations like this. So listeners, I know it's a little bit different than what we're used to. Um, but if you stuck around this uh, long, thank you. Um, we enjoyed hanging out with you today. And um, yeah, we look forward to, to hanging out some more in the future. Mm -hmm. Where God is, right? Apparently. Yeah. All right. Infinite rightness and yes. beauty and hope. Mm. Sounds good. Well, peace yes. and love, guys. And go Caps. Because doctor. No. No, Doctor Hot said, "Go cast." I know, but I, I I'm not going to say it. So you hospitality. Said for, you said it for him and yourself. I'm not okay. going to say it. So go Blackhawks, and go Caps for Doctor Hot. Oh my God. <laughs> Peace and love, guys. <laughs>